0: Men. Please be seated. <clears throat> Most of us would recognize Martin Luther as a Bible scholar. 16th century German reformer taught the scriptures for many years at the University of Wittenberg, and he preached at the Castle Church in that city. Luther's commentaries and theological writings are still widely studied nearly 500 years later. But if you think, and have you imagined Martin Luther as a young boy growing up in a home where the Word of God was read and discussed, if that's the image that you have of Martin Luther, you would be mistaken. It was not until he was 20 years of age, as a student at the University of Erfurt, that he saw a complete Bible for the first time. He was in the possession of the church. He couldn't take it home and read it, but he reports later that he was delighted to see how big it was. And what he meant by that was that there was many things that were in the Bible he had never heard read in the churches that he attended, the only place where many people could gain access to the Word of God. But even then, what he heard read The text read in the churches profited him only because he was an educated young man. In that day, the Bible was read in Latin. And most Germans had absolutely no idea what they were hearing. They might pick up a word here and there, but they weren't educated in Latin. And many of the priests themselves that read it announced the text with no idea what they were reading. Many years as illustration, many years after Luther trusted Christ as Savior and saw in the New Testament the truth of a personal Savior in Christ, salvation by faith alone in this Savior, not through the church. As he began to preach those things, some Roman Catholic priests thought that Luther had written the New Testament. They were reading it in Latin every week. They had no idea what they were reading. They thought he was the author of the New Testament. So blinded were they. There was such a famine of the word in the land that they knew not what God had said. As God's people, we look back on such dark days. And we know that a dearth of, the, of biblical truth is one of the greatest of all deprivations. Think of this as reading this week in the prophet Amos, and he said this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. That's the greatest of all judgments. The greatest of all deprivation is to be separated from God and His Word. A famine of God's Word is as harmful to our souls as a lack of food and a lack of water to our bodies. So for this reason, though on the verge of physical starvation, Jesus said, quoting Deuteronomy, man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. When God's people are fed God's Word, they are enlivened, they are nourished, they are guided, they are prospered in ways beyond number. From our perspective then, we must recognize the importance of God's Word and actively feed upon it. And that's a theme that we could present at great length. It's something we must come to know and discern. We must feed on the Word of God. It is essential for our life. But I'd like to look at this from the other angle today, in light of our text. Looking at matters from God's perspective, when God places His hand upon His people, a hand of blessing He always supplies them with capable, accurate, convicting, life-changing instruction in His Word. That is His blessing. That is the opposite of famine. That is abundance. To hear the Word of God, to be taught the meaning of Scripture, to be brought under the conviction of the Spirit in light of God's proclaimed Word is a tangible evidence of God's blessing. We see this truth fleshed out in the 7th chapter of Ezra as we continue our verse-by-verse journey through this historical narrative. I invite you there to Ezra chapter 7. And it's this truth that we find here. Let's remember as we think back and get our bearings again in Ezra 7, that between chapter 6 and chapter 7, there is a 58-year gap. So the Israelites in the first six chapters, some 50,000 of them, have returned from Babylonian captivity. They've come back to the promised land by the grace of God. And so as chapter 6 comes to an end, God has used the policies of the Persian kings to authorize the Jews to build a temple on Mount Zion and to reinstate the annual Passover observances. It's not been an easy time, but God has brought them here to this second temple now, and against all expectation, there are Israelites again worshiping God in the land. But again, 58 years pass between the events recorded in chapter 6 and those now that we meet in chapter 7. We know very little about these years. Ezra 4 fills in one piece of the a situation and reminds us there was some tremendous struggle that was being faced by the Jews that were returned to the land. There was opposition from the locals. The book of Nehemiah would indicate to us that the city walls were in a state of disrepair and ruin and so were really not helpful at all to provide protection for Jerusalem. But while times were hard The rebuilt temple and the celebration of Passover stood as tangible evidences of God's unique blessing upon the remnant of Israelites. God had acted in amazing ways to aid them and bring them to this place. But something was missing. There was something lacking. The temple was like a new school building that needed a good principal. It was like a new health club that needed a skilled trainer. The temple stood on Mount Zion, but what Israel needed now was the life-sustaining dynamic of a capable teacher of God's Word. Cue the trumpets and enter Ezra. Ezra the scribe. We need to know this man a lot better than we do. Ezra the scribe in God's perfect timing and his never dying love for his people, God blesses his remnant yet again and he does so by bringing this man to this place. He blesses them by graciously supplying a gifted teacher of the law to instruct God's chastened people as they strive now to carve out a new society here in the land. We're introduced to Ezra in the first ten verses of this chapter. We read in verse 1 of Ezra 7, Now after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra the son of Sariah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, son of Zadok, son of Ahitub, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Merioth, son of Zerahiah, son of Uzi, son of Bucky, son of Abishua, son of Phineas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the chief priest, this Ezra, went up from Babylonia. He went up. You see the theme there again that we've been tracing through the book of Ezra. Chapter 8 will detail the second wave of returned exiles under Ezra's leadership. But he went up. It's a thematic phrase describing the return to the promised land from Egyptian slavery after 400 years there. It is a phrase that is now used as the returnees come back from Babylon after 70 years of disciplinary exile. And here again in this second wave, they go up to God's holy hill. There are two reasons for Ezra's genealogy we won't take time to talk about each of these individuals. It's hard enough to read their names, but uh, they do have a history. It is, it is unique, and it's an interesting history. But just in a general sense, without bogging down on this genealogy, there are at least two reasons, I believe, that it's here. The first is to inform us very simply, Ezra is an important man. You're supposed to get that when you insert a, a genealogy in a historical narrative it is a Hebrew's way of saying, this guy matters. Take very careful note of Ezra, the scribe. When it says that his father is Saraiah, we're not talking there about biological father. This genealogy skips many generations. Father just means ancestor in this, con- in this construct. But he was, Saraiah, the high priest during the reign of Judah's last king, Zedekiah. So his ancestor, Ezra's ancestor, was the high priest, the last high priest that was there under the monarchy. So he is a very important individual, and his pedigree is here for us to grasp that idea. Secondly, this genealogy demonstrates Ezra's lineage as a Levite and as a priestly descendant of Aaron. Ezra's God-given job is to teach God's word to God's people. This is his calling. This was a task uniquely assigned to the Levitical priests. But not only was Ezra's tribal... This this was his tribal responsibility as a Levite to teach the word of God. We also learn in the second part, the next phrase in verse 6, that he was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. He was skilled in the law of Moses. Scribes in that day were important governmental officials. They had varying administrative responsibilities, but among God's people, scribes were scholars who studied the law of God. They would have been like an attorney today on some level, but their text was not U.S. law, but their text was Mosaic law. And this man had mastered his studies of God's word. His profession was to study and teach the Old Testament, as we would look at it. From every indication, Ezra had an important role in Artaxerxes' court as well, but that role was oriented primarily to Mosaic law and secondarily to Persian law. That was in keeping with what we know of the Persian policy. Some people have looked at this and at first blush said, well, this could not possibly be that a Persian king would support someone studying Mosaic law. As we look at the history and the extant documents from this period of time, this is, is perfectly consistent with Persian law. And so Ezra, supported by The empire of Persia is studying God's word day after day with diligence and with skill. As we might put it, Ezra was a no-kidding-around scholar. He was a unique Bible teacher. He also had influence at the court of Artaxerxes, as we see at the last part of verse 6. The king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. I don't think that he's asking for money, that he's asking for influence. What he's asking for is that he can return to the promised land and that he could bring some people with him. So though we don't really get into the history of of that here, we know that he goes to the king and asks him to go back, and the king says yes, much as will happen with Nehemiah. And the reason? Not simply because the king of Persia was such a nice guy but because the hand of the Lord was upon him. There was a unique blessing of God upon this man, not only to study, not only as a scholar, but also as a leader. So God blesses him uniquely and gives him the ability to carry this mission back to the promised land. What mission? To teach the Word of God. To establish the law, to instruct people in that law, and to put forward God's word. He was skilled, experienced, distinguished in this gift. And while we'd love to know more about how all this took place, the text continues on at verse 7, where we read that there went up, verse 6, Ezra went up, Verse 7, and there went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king, some of the people of Israel, some of the priests and Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants. So Ezra leads the second wave of of returnees to the promised land and went up, we'll find again in verse 9. Uh, A continuing emphasis as well as in verse 28 to finish out the section. So watch that phrase. They went up to the holy hill. They returned to God's promised land. Verse 8, And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month he began to go up from Babylonia. On the first day of the fifth month he came to Jerusalem, for the good hand of his God was on him. We see it again there, going up, and we see it again there, the good hand of his God was upon him. There was blessing here. A nearly four-month journey. By God's grace, we'll look at that more next week as we get to Ezra chapter 8 and let, think more carefully about this 900-mile journey. It took them nearly four months to make this journey, but they arrived safely in the promised land because the hand of his God was upon him. Verse 10 bringing this section to a close, here's what we're to know of Ezra. And really all of this first ten verses will be worked out in the rest of the book. But we read verse ten, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, and to do it, and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. He had given himself to study the word of God. He is a scholar dedicating his life to understanding what God has written. It takes hard discipline work to ex- excel in the study of God's Word. Not everyone is fitted to such labor, at least not vocationally. Some will display more skill than others, and there are differing skills among students. But the study of God's Word requires a certain level of gifting, of skill, of self-discipline. And what we're talking about here is not your average pastor. What we're talking about here is an individual of great theological significance. A man who turns the history of the study of God's word at this particular place so that there is a unique emphasis upon the law of God from Ezra's day forward. This is a unique individual that God places with his people. And he, comes, he is a student of the word. Secondly, you notice here that he does it. He gave himself to do it. That is a crucial phrase. The only student of God's word who is worthy of the title is the one who lives what he studies. God's Word is given to transform His people, not to pack our heads full of facts. It is given to empower us for God, not merely to stimulate our intellect. This was not merely a curious mind at work. This was a man committed in devotion and loyalty to the Lordship of his God. He knew the God of Israel, and he longed to obey Him. He knew that this Word was his life. And so he lived it. And thirdly, he taught it. Any teacher of God's Word who fails to live that truth is a hypocrite. He should stop teaching, at least on a formal level, until his life synchronizes with that message. So we have it here, to study it, but to do it and then to teach it. To teach God's Word is a high calling. It's also a profound responsibility. It is a moral stewardship not merely an intellectual one. We pause to think of our own setting. It's very different. But we see the connections to our own day and our own church, our own situation. I don't know how often we stop and think about the blessing of God In our seminary students, that we have young people here that are studying God's Word on a formal level. They are learning, many of them, the Greek language. They are learning the Hebrew language. They are learning historical theology. They are studying and discerning God's Word. That's a gift to this church. We don't deserve it. We can't place ourselves in a spot where there's such learning going on in a city. There are massive numbers of churches that would love to have such a blessing as we do. We have a seminary professor in our congregation. That's a blessing. It's a unique blessing. Do we recognize that uncommon blessing? I was just talking to Dr. Pratt, John, to us here, but uh, Looking back historically as we've been helping another church with an issue and particularly with translation transition and remembering back on the history in my documents this week of how he, he mem- if you remember this transition in our history, he took the Greek New Testament next to our ESV Bible and read the New Testament comparing the two. Now, Most of us can't do that. I could do it. I'd be done by about 200 years from now, I could could get it done, but I couldn't sit down and do that that fast. It's a blessing to our small congregation to have ability like that within our congregation. And we are all to be students of God's word. But it is nothing less than God's blessing when he calls and gifts individuals to train as students of this word. We should recognize this. We should value this. We should rejoice in God's mercies. And we should rejoice in this work that's going on at various levels within our congregation. There are Bible class teachers who are not formally trained within this assembly who study God's Word diligently. Who are pouring over the Scriptures and seeking to understand them. And they're putting together their studies with what they're learning within the context of this church. That is a unique blessing. You probably grew up in a church if you've been in a Christian context all of your life where you had some teachers that should not have been teachers. I had a few that well, I think it would have been better if we had talked about football or something. It was just a kind of a waste of time. And not only a waste of time, but when it's a waste of time, it becomes a detriment. But I thank God. Do you know? I thank God. Our teachers are training all the time. They're learning in seminars. They're studying how to be a teacher in a process that we put into place here. And as Ron Hagen gives them direction and continues to train and develop them, do we recognize the blessing of teachers that are laboring to study the Word of God? Now, we're no Ezra around here. We're not even close. He's a unique individual. A hinge pin in history. Nobody here like that. But praise God and recognize the significance of the teaching ministry of a church and the value that is placed upon it. There are churches, so called in this culture, we know of them, we have contact with them, sometimes we've sat in their assemblies where there are 20-minute conversations that really have nothing to do with God's Word. And that's the preaching and teaching ministry of the church. They're social clubs. With all the good that God may do through them and without us naming names or calling anybody or throwing any rocks, it's just story time. Let's continue to recognize what God has done here in this congregation. And let's defend it and stick with it. And while many people turn away, let's continue to honor God's word. Back to Ezra. Kidner wisely observes that Ezra was not an innovator. He was not a reviser. He was not a compiler of God's word. He was a student He had been given a sacred trust to diligently study God's truth, then to model it and teach God's people so that they would understand that truth and so that they would follow that truth. Kidner says, I quote him, it was he, Ezra, more than any other man who stamped Israel with its lasting character as a people of the book. In our tiny circles, In our small influence, may it be clear that we are people of the book. And may those whom we influence realize they are people of the book. Well, we come then at verse 11 to Artaxerxes' letter authorizing and supplying Ezra's return to the land. And we'll move through this fairly quickly as it is just simply a straightforward letter. It's awesome in some respects when you think of what's actually happening here, that a pagan Persian king is saying these things. But it's fairly straightforward. It's, it's certainly a blessing. But it is a letter that defines Ezra's mission. Let's pick it up there at verse 11 before we get into the actual letter. This is a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra the priest, the scribe, a man learned in matters of the commandments of the Lord and his statutes for Israel. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the the scribe of the law of the God of heaven. Peace. A scribe of the law of the God of heaven. That phrase is used elsewhere and it indicates that Ezra has a formal position at the court. And this is his position. He is a scribe. He is a student of the word. He is one who has come to, come to understand Mosaic law. And he serves in the court of Artaxerxes. Peace. And now, he says, I make a decree... That any one of the people of Israel, or their priests or Levites in my kingdom, who freely offers to go to Jerusalem, may go with you, Ezra. For you, Ezra, are sent by the king, Artaxerxes, and his seven counselors. Fits what we know of Persian.